scripture for 2015. It's our theme. Let's say this out loud. Blessed is the man who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Are you in? All right, let's grow. God bless you. You can have a seat. If you just heard that part of I'm in, let's grow, thinking, what is that all about? Well, what, what I'm doing here is whenever we say that scripture together this year, uh, it just I, I'm just asking you guys, are you in agreement? And then if you are, that's why we say, are you in? And you say, I'm in. And, and our theme for this year is growth, because we want to grow. We don't want to stay where we are. We want to grow. And that's really what this time is about. It's kind of our call to growth each, each, each week. And that scripture that I just read, that's truth. Um, <clears throat> And when we know the truth, the truth sets us free. The truth sets us free from labels that limit us. And one of the ugly labels that has, one of the ugly labels that is that has held people back many times in the past is this label that I would call damaged. It's it it has extraordinary power over people. And and, and maybe some of you you've been told that you're damaged goods. Someone looks at your life and they mock you and, and, and they put that label of damaged on you as well. Or, or worse yet, you're telling yourself that you're damaged. But here's the truth. That label damaged will always hold you back. What it's going to do, it's going to limit your potential. And if you label yourself as damaged, then you're living what I call a limited life. So today, I'm saying it's time to tear off that limiting label and replace it with a limitless label. So today, my message is entitled Limitless Restoration. And, and I'm going I'm to talk deeply about this label of damage, but really in order to do so, I want to address something. I want to address some confusion that's in our culture. And this is very important. And here's the statement. I'm going to follow it with an explanation. But the statement is this. People are made to be loved, things are made to be used. I'll say that again. People are made to be loved, things are made to be used. See, the confusion in our culture is that people are being used and things are being loved, and this creates a huge problem because things, well, they get damaged. Uh, why do things get damaged? It's because we use things. Anything you use is going to eventually become damaged. I mean, yesterday alone, just yesterday, I was thinking, you know, I replaced a damaged car battery. I fixed a damaged faucet. I, I repaired a damaged hole in the wall. I damaged the lid to my coffee carafe, and I tossed it in the trash, and I ordered a new one from Amazon Smile and set City Life as the donation recipient for that, just in case you're wondering. I, I broke one of my wife's glass decorations outside and I cleaned it up and I threw the damaged decoration in the trash because things get damaged because they're meant to be used and we use things. But see, when it comes to things, that's what I use, but I don't love things. Now, people, on the other hand, are not made to be used. They're made to be loved. Therefore, it should be impossible for people to be labeled as damaged. But 
if we use people instead of loving people, or if we see ourselves, even perceive ourselves as being used instead of loved, what ends up happening is that damaged label becomes our identity. And that damaged label, uh, it limits and it cripples so many people. So it's time for a new label. And the new label is restored. Now, it may not be something that you've done. It may have been something that was done to you. It could simply even be an act of someone else's prejudice. And prejudice is when someone judges you or, or there's a judgment based upon a first glance. And you believe this lie of this damaged goods or this damaged label and it limits you. And you, you buy into this damaged life and, uh, and, 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 and that's not the way we're supposed to live. And, and if, you, if you really buy into this lie, which is that, well, we're damaged and damaged is not good. Well, then Jesus cert certainly <laughs> set something up pretty strange because he would have had a lot of damaged men on his team that was going to change the world called the disciples. I mean, I've read the Bible and it's not really a pretty picture picture of a group of guys. And if the Bible, that, which, which kind of brings me back to this whole thing of some people say, well, we don't know if the Bible is true. Well, I'm telling you right here, if you want to create something, you would have created a group of like these perfect guys that are going to change the world, but they weren't. I mean, Jesus' team was, th there were some goofballs in there. And one was a terrorist. Another one was this demon crazed nut job that would end up betraying Jesus for money. Another one was a, was a chronic a denier. Another was a doubting Thomas literally the doubting Thomas. Another was a racist. Another was a tax collector. And I say, well, tax collector, that's not bad. Well, please understand. In that culture, that was actually the worst of all the guys because that would be on the same level today, honestly, as a child molester. Seriously, that's what it was perceived as. So how is that a group for, of damaged people? So Jesus is attracted to damaged people. Now, here's the truth. People may have given up on you, but Jesus hasn't. He's not going to give up on you ever. The skeletons in your closet do not scare Jesus. Jesus is attracted to damaged people like you and like me. All right, so today I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter number four. We're going to go there in just a few minutes. We're going to tell a story. I'm going to show you a story of when Jesus was on the wrong side of town. Has that ever happened to you? You've been on the wrong side of town? You know, uh, it, it literally happened to me. I mean, literally. Uh, 20 years ago is when the story starts. Rebecca and our three-year-old son, Preston, we were together with this other family, and we all crammed, I think like all eight of us, into this, this minivan. I mean, we were like smashed against each other, and we were, we were doing a budget trip on our way to Disney World in Orlando, Florida. I mean, I'm going to take my little boy to go see Mickey Mouse, and and, and on the way there, we, we kind of meandered through one of the cities that's on the road there, and it's Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And so we were going through Baton Rouge. We went into the town and, and to kind of get some stuff and do some things. And, and we, we needed some gas and, and needed to get, use the restroom and get some snacks. And so, so I, we were there at this, this uh, store, and I, I was checking out. I was, I was there. And, and the employee at the register, he looked at me, and he said, you're not from around here, are you? I said, no. He said, well, it's obvious. And then he got really intense. He said, look at me closely. Now look outside. You see that it's getting dark? You and your family need to get together, 
get in your car and drive south on this road until you hit the interstate and do not stop and do not get out of your car until you get to the interstate. I mean, my eyes, my eyes were huge. I mean, I'm, I'm going like, what? what? I was like, I, I'm just from like uh, Texas. We, we just kind of try to get along. I, I don't know what's going on here. I really, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And, and the guy was serious. And he went on to say this. So he made it clear because he could see I'm confused. I, I, I'm not getting it. And he said, let me be clear with you. You're white. You're on the wrong side of town. He says, you've been, he said this, you've been warned. And at that point, I'm like, Really? And so, so, duh. And so I, I just kind of start looking around me, and then I notice, okay, I am the only white person in this store, but, uh, you know, but maybe in, in Texas that's not a big deal. Maybe it's a big deal out here. I don't know. And at that point, at that point, I, I, I looked, and, and right there on the counter was this huge jar. I'm telling you, huge, massive jar full of pickled pig's feet on the counter. And, and at that point, I thought, well, I don't eat those, and maybe I am in the wrong place. I don't know what's going on here. So what I did is I obeyed. I respected the warning, and I I appreciated it. I got in my car with sobriety of heart, with focus. I am getting out of here. Now, now I did that, and that's the end of the story, but kind of. It's not really the end of the story, and this story is 100% true. It's strange, but three weeks ago, I was in Baton Rouge, and I was coming back home, taking my family back from this uh, fun event that we had of exploring Civil War forts on beaches, and I detoured through Baton Rouge, and there was heavy traffic on the interstate, and so I kind of went, took some back roads, and went through Baton Rouge, and then all of a sudden, uh, one of my sons says, Dad, I need to use the restroom. So I'm like, okay, well, I see a convenience store here. I pulled into the convenience store, and they went in. And I stayed out in the car with my sleeping wife and my other sleeping son, and I'm just sitting there, and I just start looking around. And then I'm just looking around thinking, this just seems vaguely familiar. I, I, I don't know. It's, I just kept looking, and then I realized it hit me. I was here 20 years ago, and, and it's so amazing how your brain can capture images where you are for just a moment, and, and those images are there and stores them for 20 years, and, and all of a sudden the images came back, and the, I, just, I even noticed like some of these buildings are different colors, things look a little different, but it's the same place. I was here 20 years ago, and then the emotions from 20 years ago came back. And so I sent my two sons this message in, this, in the store, and I would look back on my messages to see what did I really send them, because I remember sending it, so I, I wrote this, I said, Please stay with each other and come back quickly. This place isn't very safe. I've been here before. Sent them the text message. Well, there's no response. Five minutes goes by, nothing happens. And th I mean, nothing happens. And so I'm thinking, they don't even get it. So I said, if you doubt me, there's a massive bucket of pig's feet on the counter. That will prove to you. And so, and, and, and they do nothing. And they don't, they don't respond back with an okay, a K, or even missing the K and hitting an L. I mean, nothing, nothing. And they, they finally come back, and they get in the car, and, 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 uh, and you know, I mean, the truth is, when you accidentally stumble into a wrong part of town, and you get a warning, and you respect that warning, even 20 years later, it's just like, okay, I'm going to be careful right here. And they got in the car, and one of my sons said, that, that, that place is really different. I'm like, well, what do you mean? And I said, like, it feels like everybody's kind of watching you. And then, and then there's this huge jar of pig's feet on the counter <laughs> 20 years later. I'm sure that they've changed since then. But, and I said, I said, didn't you see my text? And he said, no. I said, look at the text message I sent you. And I read it. He goes, 
uh, Dad, when were you here? <laughs> Thinking it was recent. Uh, I said, Dad, it was, I said, son, it was 20 years ago before you were born. Let's go. Let's head on out. And I told them the story. I mean, that's 100% truth. But if you were intentionally, think of this, though. What if you were intentionally going to a part of town that was considered to be the absolute worst place to be? What if you were intentionally going there? What if you were going to a place that was repulsive to most people because the residents were a mixture of two to four races? A place where uh, the residents were actually considered to be animals, and there's this racial slur where they called the people who lived there dogs to describe them. And please understand, dogs in that day was not the variety of the gracious pets we have hopping through our house and that we, we shampoo and put bows in their hair. I mean, they roamed in packs. They were violent. They, they, would, they would just consume any carcasses they could find, even human carcasses. In fact, by Jewish standards, animals were considered to be one of the unclean animals. I mean, I, I've not told my chihuahuas this because they will freak out. So I just kind of leave it alone. But, but this was a place a lot of people didn't want to go. It's called Samaria. It was a place where followers of God were actually forbidden to go by their pastors. Why? Because they might get contaminated by damaged people. What if that place was directly between you and your destination? Now, the spiritual elite, in order to go, go around that area, they would not go through it. They would actually go around it, adding a lot of hours to their journey. But, but instead, you go into this wrong neighborhood anyway, intentionally. Well, that's what happened with Jesus. He and his disciples were traveling from Judea up to Galilee, and he did the unthinkable. He went through Samaria instead of going around it. And, and in those days, Jews, especially a rabbi like Jesus was, would, would never take a shortcut through Samaria because Samaria was a land that was filled with people who were an ethnic mix. They were part Jew, part Roman, part Phoenician, and part Greek. Uh, you know, probably most of us would fit in quite well there because like I was thinking, you know, my kids are, well, they're Mexican, they're German, they're Cherokee, and they're English. I mean, well, you know, what a mess. But the racially pure Jewish people labeled them, and I say racially pure in quotes, they labeled them as being damaged. And they thought it was impossible for them to have any value above that of an animal. The cool thing about Jesus is Jesus always going, enjoys going to undesirable places, and he likes getting with unwanted and damaged people. In fact, damaged people really attract the heart of God, which should be good news for every one of us, because Jesus likes to unite what man divides. And Jesus is there in Samaria, and in the story, he meets this woman, and I'm going to give her a name. I'm going to give her the name Samara. How's that? Samara is this damaged woman. I made that name up for her because I want to personalize this woman in the Bible. Because when Samara looked in the mirror, she saw damaged. She was a moral outcast among the Samaritans, the people that she lived with because of her past. She was a moral outcast to the Jews simply because of her mere existence as a Samaritan. Samara saw herself as unworthy. Samara had been divorced five times. In that culture, a rabbi would allow or permit two divorces at most, but five would be unimaginable. 
And Samara, therefore, makes this easy target for a person that we can judge. Judge her at a first glance. Be prejudiced toward her simply because she is damaged. You know, the truth of it, most likely she was a victim of it all. Um, But the label of damaged goods was on her heart. That was her identity. And, and, And in that culture, women just couldn't go out and get a job to provide for themselves. Especially after five divorces, I mean, what decent man is going to marry and provide for her? So, so I'm thinking that probably even out of hunger, the necessity of staying alive, she was forced to live then with a man who is not even her husband so that she could simply have some food and survive. I mean, what other option would she have? She was damaged good. Her, her, her life was limited. Well, her life was limited at least until she met the limitless God who offered her limitless restoration because Jesus saw in her what no one else saw. See, what Jesus sees is a person restored. Long before this moment, I believe God saw Samara's pain-filled face and he wept. Long before this story in John 4, I believe he saw Samara's restoration and he smiled. I want you to look at verse chapter four, verse nine. Jesus arrives at the well and he's there in this town called Sychar and and he sent his disciples away to go purchase some food. Samara arrives, a conversation ensues and Jesus asks Samara for water. It says, the woman was surprised For Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. Why did you ask me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. You see, at that time, a Jewish rabbi would not even speak to his wife or his daughter in public. But Jesus, what does he do? He breaks all the rules. The rabbi spoke to a woman, a stranger, in fact, even even more interesting, a Samaritan dog to top it all off. And, And he asked her, the unclean woman, to give him a drink. See, I love it because Jesus does not pay attention to the culture's limiting, bigoted rules that creates barriers between people. Instead of what Jesus does is he plays by the kingdom of God's law, which is the law of love, and the law of love obliterates barriers. Jesus gives freely if he is asked. And then you have to receive what he's going to give you if you're going to be restored. I mean, I'm going to tell you guys, Jesus craves to restore damaged people. And damaged people are simply restored when God comes in and touches them and 
God has a gift for us, and that gift is Jesus. And if we, if we don't receive that gift and, and we hold back because we think we're not good enough or whatever, then we're missing out because we can't receive the, good, the, the gift based upon our own goodness or our lack of goodness. See, God, what he did is he gave humanity this gift in spite of our lack of goodness and in spite of our poor performance. This gift is given to us simply because of God's goodness and God's gift changes everything. You can't earn it and you can't deserve it. You don't deserve it and neither do I. But what what happens here is God showed his great love for us. Togs, might as well call us that, damaged by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So to be restored, what you have to do is you have to drink from this living water that Jesus gives you, which means you're really drinking from Jesus himself. (laughs) Can you imagine the look on Samara's face when Jesus told her, well, I have this living water that I want to give to you. And and, and I I can only imagine her, her fear and her excitement that spiked in her heart simultaneously. I mean, she must have been thinking, this is like crazy awesome. Uh, But again, Here we go again, because once he finds out that I'm damaged, he's going to reject me like everyone else. And then Jesus goes on and says, hey, go get your husband. But then Samara, the cool deal is, she was honest and she was open and she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus replied, I know. I think he was kind of happy. He's like, yeah, it's okay. We're on the right path here. I know. You've had five husbands and the guy you're living with isn't your husband. Now, some people might get thrown off by that, but I think that's rather cool that Jesus said that. See, what he's doing here is he's not, this is, this is important, guys, he's not condoning Samara's lifestyle at all. That's why he asked her to go get her husband. That's important to understand. There's a little side note here. You know, sometimes I guess you could, I call them like stodgy, churchy, religious folks many times have it backwards because they're the religious that want to condemn and judge damaged people. They want to condemn and judge the people into repentance. And that doesn't work where you're just like, stop what you're doing, change your ways. But you see, Jesus' method was different. And this is the method we embrace at City Life. It's right here. Jesus says, I will restore you by giving you my living water, so you can stop doing what you're doing. See, that, my friend, is called grace. That's what I accept. That is what restores us. It's not about shoving God's morals on the other person, but it's about giving the other person Jesus and allowing and encouraging and demonstrating to that person how to make changes with the help of the Holy Spirit. But first, you've got to believe to be restored. Jesus said, I am the Messiah, and you have to believe that. Then we have to believe that Jesus is what he says he is. Now, take a look down at verse number 29. What happened here is she immediately went to all the people that she knew in town in Samara. She shouted this. She said, come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? See, you're not going to share your, if, if you're, you're not going to start sharing your discovery and what you've just stumbled upon if you really don't believe it. But she believed it. And, and here's this, and this is important, guys. Truly restored people restore. 
What's amazing about this story is it's actually a picture of a contrast because the disciples are contrasted against Samara. They come back and, and, and they give Jesus his food, but Jesus doesn't dive in and start eating like I would. I mean, the, I, was, I, was, uh, I, I, I was kind of in a transition point. I ran to a pizza place to get some pizza and I sat there. It was nice. It was the first time I had been there. And I went there last night and, and okay, I'm just going to run in here, grab some food and, and, and take it home. And, and I went and waited and waited and waited and waited 45 minutes. I waited for my order and I was like, man, I, I, I'm not like the grouchy kind, so I'm not going to, you know, it's like, hey, you know, where's my order? I, I just don't do that in restaurants. And so, so I, 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 then I go back and stand in line, get all the way to the front of the line and say, excuse me, but I, I've just, I've been waiting about 45 minutes, you know, since the timestamp on the receipt here, and I still haven't heard my name called. And I go, whoa, what's going on? You know, they eventually find my food and they, oh, we forgot to call you. <laughs> Sorry. And they gave me my food. You know, I get home and it's cold and everything. But even when I got home, I was ravenous. I, I, and I scarfed the food down and I was, Ugh! and it's, it was funny because I know what I was preaching about this morning. I thought, and that's so funny because Jesus did just the opposite. <laughs> because when the disciples gave him his food, he didn't start eating. He seems to be like spaced out. If you read the whole story, it, the Bible says he was famished at the beginning. He was like really exhausted. He needed some food. And he didn't start eating. In fact, he's like in this daze. And look at verse 34. I mean, they, they start begging him to eat because they knew how hungry he was. And Jesus then all of a sudden gets cryptic on them. And he said, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. I mean, all the disciples wanted to do was give him some food. But unfortunately... The spiritually sick disciples were not only racist and sexist, but they didn't have a clue as to what their real calling was. And really what Jesus was saying is he's basically saying this, hey guys, I've come to rescue the world. I'm on a mission and I'm going to do what satisfies me and what energizes me. Now look down at verse 35. He says this, he says, for know the saying, you know this, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up, look around. The fields are already white for harvest. Now, they lived in this agricultural society, very different from our downtown Fort Worth. So most of Jesus' illustrations were based upon agriculture because that's what they saw all around them. But when the wheat was ready to be harvested, that wheat would appear white. And there's this color shift that happened. And that color shift was a signal to the harvester that it was time to get busy and harvest. The wheat was white. It's interesting very interesting because the Samaritans in those days would all be dressed in white. Jesus was using symbolism. He was saying, if you'll really look, there are people dressed in white all around you. Jesus was saying, gentlemen, you're in a city. You're in a city full of people, and these people do not know me, and they don't know about the restoration that I freely offer. And your harvest, they are all dressed in white. He was essentially telling his disciples that they just arrived in a city full of damaged people, and they didn't even tell any of them about the power that they had to restore he let them know that the damaged woman therefore came to him and, 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 uh, and she came to him along with her poor reputation while they were out doing their job. And, and, you know, it's basically this. Why didn't the disciples invite people to meet Jesus? I have some hunches. My hunches are basically this. They failed to share Jesus with the Samaritans because they allowed the trivial and the temporal going to get lunch to overshadow the critical, and the eternal. And it's a lesson to us. I also believe it was because racism and sexism is a very hard sin to break. 
They were only conditioned to reach out to people that looked like them, smelled like them, and dressed like them, the Jews. And this illustration is given to us by Jesus so that we can learn, so that we can grow, so that we can be restored ourselves. And there are four important truths I want to share with you as I close today's message. First one is this. God's not intimidated by your damaged life. No, he, it's not about what you did, how you're labeled. It's not, it, that label is not who you are. God is not holding you at a distance and he's not afraid to get too close to you. And God's people must also act like God and never be intimidated by damaged lives. Second is this, God is attracted to broken, damaged lives. He goes and looks and searches for the hurting and the damage. And some of you, you're here today Listen, because God drew you here and God's been putting signs in front of you and people in your pathway and circumstances in your life and you found yourself here and you thought it was Yelp that brought you here, but it was God. And God is the God of the universe and God is attracted to you. And I'll tell you what, people of God who bear the name of Christ, who carry his spirit, you are also attracted to broken, damaged lives. And third, third is this, is God really desires his grace to encounter everyone to bring restoration. And that includes you. He, he wants you to be on this collision course with his grace and he craves that you be restored. Your restoration is God's passion. He wants to repair the broken pieces of your life, the damaged elements of your existence and restore your life. He wants to turn your ugly into his beauty. And finally, it's this. Every one of us, we have this critical role in bringing others to him, to the God who restores. Restored people restore. We show the grace of Jesus. We carry his living water in us. We are a living, breathing, walking, talking fountain of God. We are agents of the restoration. It's simply what we do. Limitless restoration. You close your eyes for just a moment and focus internally. And if you want to know this Jesus, this living water that I'm talking about, and you want a clean slate, and you, you want to live your life with a renewed sense of purpose, and you want limitless restoration for yourself, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. If you want to be included in this closing prayer and make Jesus the Lord of your life, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand because faith is responding outwardly to what's happening inwardly. One, the limitless God loves you so much. Two, he died for you so that you can have life. Three, limitless restoration begins today. Who wants Jesus, the God of restoration? Would you please lift your hand for me? Thank you. Who else? You need him today. Put your hands down, guys. I want everybody to stand. If you raise your hand, I want you along with the entire congregation of believers to pray this with me. Pray this out loud with me right now. Please, everyone. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. I believe you're the Son of God. Forgive my sins. I give up my past. And I embrace the future that you have for me. I choose to let you love me and I will love you in return. Thank you, Jesus, for running toward me when others have run away. Thank you 
for not being repulsed by my damaged life. <laughs> I'm so thankful that on the cross, you took my damage, you took my shame, so I choose to worship you by seeing and believing that I am restored. Thank you, Jesus, for limitless restoration. In Jesus' name, amen.